Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Films can be magical. Think of the movies that influenced aspiring filmmakers. From great white sharks off the coast of New England to dinosaurs rampaging across a Costa Rican island, two hours in a darkened theater can be life-changing. The films with this kind of power tend to be the ones with the best-of lists. Casablanca, Jaws, Citizen Kane, Taxi Driver. Movies with one heck of a story to tell. And then there's 1939's Code of the Secret Service. It certainly was a movie, just not a great one, at least according to the film's star, an actor named Ronald Reagan. Before he became the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan was an entertainer, starring in dozens of films, including westerns and dramas. One series had Reagan playing a character named Lieutenant Brass Bancroft, a former military pilot who joined the Secret Service to take down criminals. The first installment in the franchise, the 1939's Secret Service of the Air, was a modest hit. Its success pushed the studio to greenlight three more sequels over the next year. That's right, three Secret Service movies starring Ronald Reagan were released in 1939. The final film, Murder in the Air, came out in 1940. Quantity over quality, I guess. It was the second installment, though, Code of the Secret Service, that was particularly special. Not because it was any good, though. Reagan hated it. He called it the worst picture he had ever made and was quoted as saying, Never has an egg of such dimensions been laid. He wasn't yoking, either. The film was almost universally panned by theatergoers and critics alike. Still, it made enough money to keep the series afloat for two more installments. In the film, Lieutenant Bancroft is sent after a ring of counterfeiters who have stolen engraving plates from the U.S. Treasury. Exciting on paper, but not so much in execution. Unless you were Jerry. Jerry was born in 1930 in Montgomery, Alabama, but grew up in Florida. When he was 32 years old, a recruiter from the United States Secret Service paid him a visit and asked if he wanted to join. Jerry didn't think the job was any more dangerous than the one that he had been doing in Florida Power and Light, so he said yeah. Jerry was no spring chicken. He entered the academy alongside much younger cadets, but that didn't stop him from persevering. As a new agent in the early 60s, Jerry was first assigned to protect John F. Kennedy and then Lyndon B. Johnson as they attended Eleanor Roosevelt's funeral. From there, he was almost always beside a president or vice president. In 1981, though, Jerry faced the challenge of his life. He was working as part of President Reagan's Secret Service detail the afternoon of March 30th. The president had just given a speech at a major union organization at the Washington Hilton Hotel in D.C. He was being led out of the hotel around 2.27 p.m., where a sea of reporters were waiting to greet him. President Reagan had stepped up to the crowd to answer questions when a man named John Hinckley Jr. pulled a revolver out and fired. Six shots rang out. Jerry jumped into action, shoving Reagan into a waiting limousine. He looked back to see three people bleeding on the sidewalk. Hinckley had severely wounded several of the president's staff. Jerry assumed that the president had gone unharmed, but he looked back and saw blood spurting out of Reagan's mouth. Out of the six bullets that were fired, 
One had managed to lodge itself in Reagan's lung, which had collapsed. Jerry told the driver to head to George Washington University Medical Center, where doctors spent two hours removing the bullet and stitching the president back up. Reagan was fine, thanks in no small part to Jerry's quick thinking. What very few people knew at the time was that Jerry Parr almost didn't become a Secret Service agent, but he'd been inspired by a film he'd seen many times when he was younger. It was a movie about a former military pilot who joined the Secret Service to take down criminals, a movie starring Ronald Reagan called Code of the Secret Service. The worst movie Ronald Reagan ever made inadvertently saved his life. Sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. Today's television landscape comprises a vast array of programming. Much of it is good or even better than what we might find at the cinema. From star-studded series to movies of the week, the TV of today is a far cry from the sitcoms and camp of yesteryear. But that doesn't mean the television shows of the old days weren't special in their own right. They entertained families every week with tales of genies in bottles, bumbling spies, and witchy wives. But one man didn't quite care for the quality of programming in the 1960s. He thought it could be better. What he got instead was his name on a piece of television history, though not in the way he probably wanted. Newton Norman was a lawyer from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Born in 1926, Norman fought during World War II before getting his law degree from Northwestern. He worked his way up in the private sector, getting a job at a major law firm until he joined Adlai Stevenson on his two presidential campaigns in the 1950s. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy appointed Norman to the Federal Communications Commission as a commissioner. Norman took his job very seriously, lamenting the state of television at the time. It was a topic he spoke of frequently with Kennedy's brother, Robert, who agreed that modern TV programming of the time needed a lot of help. More importantly, though, he felt that the children would suffer if television continued its commercial decline. Norman furthered his agenda with a speech, which he gave at a convention in 1961, held by a powerful lobbying group. The National Association of Broadcasters were responsible for setting guidelines for television networks and radio stations. Want to know why the hour from 8 to 9 p.m. is considered primetime? Well, we have the NAB to thank for that. Norman had just become chair of the FCC two months earlier, and he was determined to make a splash— he launched into a tirade about undesirable programming, such as game shows, westerns, and sitcoms. He believed that if there was more variety, people would naturally choose to watch better shows. Among the ones he actually liked were The Twilight Zone and certain news programs, where there was plenty that he despised. He referred to television as a whole, as a vast wasteland, populated by what he called formula comedies about totally unbelievable families. Many at the NAB agreed, though by the time the speech was given, the networks had already lined up their schedules for the next season. Programming changes wouldn't happen until at least 1963. But one person had heard the speech who didn't agree with any of it, and he was going to have the last word. Sherwood Shorts had gotten his start in radio, writing for programs like The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet and The Bob Hope Show. When he made the jump to television, he got a job writing for the popular comedy program The Red Skelton Show. But Schwartz wasn't going to stay in the writer's room forever. He had an idea for a show of his own, one which he started production on in November of 1963. 
It starred an ensemble cast who found themselves stranded on a deserted island after their tour boat was damaged in a storm. What was supposed to have been a three-hour tour ended up becoming one of the most popular series on television, spanning three seasons, almost 100 episodes, and several film sequels. Plus, one catchy theme song. Gilligan's Island was a hit, and in some ways it was a hit piece on the former FCC chair himself. You see, Sherwood Schwartz didn't take too kindly to the ways in which he'd been insulted. Here he was with a formula comedy about totally unbelievable characters getting into one harebrained scheme after another, and he knew that people were going to love it. So as any great artist would, Schwartz fired back at his critic Norman in the only way he knew how. He named something in the show after him. Newton Norman Minow would live on in the hearts and minds of viewers everywhere as the inspiration behind the name of the skipper's ill-fated ship, the SS Minnow. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works, I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.